Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Our next uh, two presenters who you know well, um, you know, Justice Alan Page, he and his wife Diane were visionaries back in 1988, creating that Page Education Foundation and beginning to say, we're going to help make this possible. And of course, he's, um, you know, was a not just a all pro, very unusually successful football player, but a fantastic state Supreme Court justice. And his partnership with the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, to say, <clears throat> say out loud, our constitution of the state should require as a right, quality education is now a deep subject and we're having a big public debate on it. And so you've given us the inspiration to begin that next conversation. We know that it is part of creating a policy and that's gonna be the policies that make the future. But having once been a politician, I also know that it's people who make the policies. Thurgood Marshall and others, uh, Diane and Alan Page in their own way, and Justice Page now, and Neil Kashkari. Thank you so much for joining us, and please welcome to the screen Justice Page and uh, President Kashkari. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm turning the floor over to you uh, to uh, bring our viewers, maybe a couple thousand around the planet, um, into your thinking about the right to quality education. Well, thank you, Mark. It's, uh, my name is Neil Kashkari. I'm president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. I'm really pleased to be here with all of you. And thank you, Sandra, for your uh, kickoff, for your, your inspiring work. It's great to be with you, and it's great to be your friend. Uh, I'll just start very briefly, and then I'm going to turn it over to Alan. I've been president of the Minneapolis Fed for five years. One of my big surprises moving to Minnesota was to discover these terrible education achievement gaps that Sandra just talked about. And I challenged our researchers at the Minneapolis Fed to help me understand why they exist. Why are they there? What has been done to try to close them? And what can we learn from looking around the United States, looking around the country? What have other states done? And what we've learned is in the past 30 years, there have been many good faith attempts in Minnesota to improve education outcomes for all of our children. But if we're being honest with each other, if you look objectively at the data, we have made zero progress, zero progress in closing those gaps. And these gaps are not simply racial disparities, though there are massive racial disparities. There are socioeconomic disparities all around the state of Minnesota. Anywhere you go in Minnesota, what you basically find is that low-income children, white children, black children, brown children, indigenous children, are badly trailing their middle class and more well-to-do peers. And when I, we look around the country, there are states that have made real progress in elevating all of their children. This is not an impossible problem to solve. Some people will say, no, 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 you've got it backwards. You need to first solve poverty if you wanna solve education. They have it backwards. The most powerful tool we have to break the cycle of poverty is through quality education for all of our children. And some other states have shown it absolutely can be done. So when we looked at Minnesota, what we realized is politics seems to be getting in the way. You know, we are a divided state. Two parties are divided, uh, only divided legislature in the country. And each party has its own solutions for education, and they don't agree. 
And so what ends up happening is they agree to make minor changes around the margin without fundamentally changing the system that is providing this education and leading to these disparities. So more than two years ago, I reached out to Justice Alan Page, both because as Mark said, he's had a lifetime of passion for education equity and because he spent 22 years on Minnesota's Supreme Court. And I asked him, is there a way we could use the law to literally put children first and to break through the political barriers that are preventing us from making reforms? So together, we started by looking at the Minnesota State Constitution. The Minnesota State Constitution has an education provision in it that basically says children have the right to accessing an adequate education system. Well, what does that mean, an adequate education system? It's a system that is, on average, adequate. It is terrific for some students. It is lousy for others. And if your child has access to that system, whether they're on the top of the system or the bottom, it doesn't matter, their rights have been met. And when we looked around the country, turns out some other states have updated their constitutions to say, no, we can do better than adequate. We should create real strong rights, quality education for our children. You know, the Minnesota constitution, the education provision was written in 1857. And it basically hasn't changed since 1857. And as a quick reminder, in 1857, slavery was still legal in much of America. So the deeper we dug into this, the more we realized the Minnesota education system today is performing exactly as it was originally designed in the Constitution. And we think we can do a lot better than that. So very quickly, I'm going to give a high level overview of what our proposal is, then I'm going to turn it over to Justice Page. We want to update the Minnesota Constitution to create a civil right for every child in Minnesota to receive a quality public education. And then very importantly, make delivering on that right the highest priority of the state. We think enshrining it in the Constitution can be a very powerful catalyst for systematic change to update our education system to meet the needs of all of our children and importantly, of our economy in the future. So with that, let me turn it over to Alan to offer his thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Um, you covered that pretty well. Let me just give you a little historical perspective to how I come to this. I come to it after um, more than 50 years of speaking with school kids, parents about the importance and value of education and why their children and how their children can use education as a tool to achieve whatever their hopes and dreams may be. Over that time period, things have not gotten better. Indeed, if anything, they have gotten worse. And when uh, President Kashkari offered me the opportunity to join him in, in doing what we could to in essence, change the future, in essence, um, ensure educational justice, I was thrilled at the, at the chance. And so we, as Neil pointed out, we sat down and, and talked about what we could do constitutionally. What, what, what our guiding light should be. 
And looking at our current constitution, it is clear that as Neil pointed out, it focuses on the system and funding of that system. Well, education should be about children. And so we developed a, a proposal, an amendment to our constitution that would put children first and shift the focus, uh, not entirely away from the system and um, funding of that system, but putting children first. And as, as, as important in that is making sure that all children, individual children, children collectively and children individually are given uh, the opportunity to receive a quality public education. And our, the language, just let me quickly go through it. All children have a fundamental right to a quality public education that fully prepares them with the skills necessary for participation in the economy, our democracy and society. People often ask, what does all children mean? Well, just that, all children. Black children, brown children, indigenous children, uh, rich children, poor children, rural children, urban children, able-bodied able children and disabled children, all children. Have a fundamental right to a quality public education. What do we mean by quality? Well, the constitution, the language we've chosen tells us what we mean by quality. The quality standard is an education that fully prepares them with the skills necessary for participation in our economy, our democracy, and society. So that's the, that's the quality standard. Next, we think it's important that in assessing whether quality is being met, that there be uh, uniform standards. So the, the language goes on to say, as measured against uniform achievement standards set forth by the state. And let's not conflate the measurement tool for determining whether quality is being met with the quality standard. Those are two different things. As we exist today under our current constitutional language, we have fallen into the trap of using the measurement tool as the quality standard. And that doesn't serve anyone well. Indeed, it disserves everyone. And so it's important that uh, we get away from the system that we have now that measures failure, measures failure of schools. And at least as I understand it, having talked with any number of teachers, it doesn't do anything to help teachers or students prepare themselves for what they need to do in the future. As important as anything 
in our proposal is this last sentence. It is a paramount duty of the state. That is to say, it's a state responsibility and the state would have no higher responsibility in anything it does than to ensure quality public schools that fulfill a child's fundamental right. And when I say it's a state responsibility, that means it's a legislative responsibility, an executive branch responsibility, and a judicial branch responsibility. We create, the, this proposed amendment creates a right to a quality public education, but a right without a remedy is not much of a right. And so it's important to understand that um, when the state fails to provide and meet a child's right to a quality public education, then the ch that child will have a remedy which will uh, help vindicate that right. It is, important that we move away from where we are today, focused on a system that has systematically failed children uh, across this state, and quite frankly, systems across the country that have failed children across the country. Virtually every state has a as constitutional language, uh, most of them use language similar to the language in the Minnesota Constitution. We have to ensure that all children, all children have the opportunity to achieve their highest selves, to be, to reach their fullest and highest potential through the education that is provided. Let me just add one thing. Thank you, Alan, and then I'll turn it over uh, back to Mark. If you look at throughout American history, the, the biggest changes in our country have come through the establishment of civil rights. Think about the Bill of Rights, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion. Think about the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution, which finally prohibited slavery the 15th Amendment, which gave freed slaves the right to vote, or the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And then, of course, Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark Supreme Court case. We are talking about creating a civil right for every child to receive a quality public education. That's the biggest idea we could come up with to change the direction of our state and make sure that we break through the barriers that are leaving so many children behind. And now think about one more second, the right to vote. Imagine if the right to vote came with an obligation on the state to ensure that your rights were fulfilled, that you really had the chance to vote. That's essentially what we're doing here. The right to a quality public education and then saying this is the state of Minnesota's highest responsibility to make sure all children's rights to that quality education are fulfilled. So we're excited about this. We think this can lead to transformation over time and we appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you both so much for giving us this big picture of the historical perspective, but also that analogy so we can think about this in regards to our current situation. We've debated 
right to vote and things pretty recently here in Minnesota. So I wanna ask you both, uh, either or both of you, um, how is this tackled in some other states? I know that uh, through a court case, uh, in the Detroit schools in Michigan that was established by a court that there was a right to literacy, that the school system at a minimum had to be providing literacy to students. And this was, you know, not a full loaf of bread, but it was part of a bigger lawsuit that, you know, going after the, the whole system. Are there things in other states underway or that have come before us or uh, other options that give us some other um, sort of information to be thinking about that can be part of this discussion? Well, I would, I would first note um, that if, if I'm thinking about the same Michigan case that you're referring to, the district court found a right to literacy. The Sixth Circuit overturned that decision. There so is that no was the federal court overturned, said there, there was no. There is no federal right to education. As far as what other states have done, um, and, and Neil, you can you can chime in here anytime you want, but the state of Florida, back in late the late 90s, 98, 99, amended its constitution. Language um, not exactly the same as ours, but certainly stronger than our current language that became the catalyst for the state, uh, the legislature, the executive branch coming together and changing their education system. Back in, at the time of that 1998-99 constitutional amendment, both Minnesota and Florida in terms of uh, measurement of reading score and math skills for fourth and eighth graders were somewhere in the mid 30s, 30, 30th to 35th in the country. After Florida amended its constitution and uh, changed, made wholesale changes in the way they provide education, Florida is now sixth. Minnesota is still 30 to 35th. So not that we want to follow Florida, but what is important in what Florida did was by amending their constitution, it created that catalyst for change. And if we get our constitutional amendment passed here, that's not the end of the, of the discussion. That really is the beginning. That's when we decide what an education for the 21st century and beyond is going to look like. You know, you talk about constitutional language, you talked about um, Brown versus the Board of Education and Thurgood Marshall. Our courts rely on precedent and Precedent means you look back to what came before. And often it's when, you, when, the, when you're interpreting language, particularly constitutional language, 
you look at the language that was put in place and what, what, what the meaning of the words were then. So we're still interpreting our constitution based on what Minnesota's founding fathers saw as what was important to education. Now think about that. Think about, as Neil pointed out, slavery, the fact that the world has changed dramatically since 1857. And I asked the question, why is it that we can't be the founding mothers and fathers for the future so that we're looking forward using language that we know and understand today and not looking back to uh, a time when people were held in bondage. Well, I, I'm uh, struck by the historic moment of this time where people are thinking so much has been opened up, uh, COVID, uh, the murder of George Floyd, the economic dislocation, I mean, everything. Um, and it does remind me that um, our ability uh, to take a look at this constitution and to think forward um, was affected by those founders in the first instance. And, you know, we had two constitutions in the beginning. They're still around. Um, one put forward by one party um, that uh, took away the right to vote of freed African-American men, the other that maintained that right. And there was a big fight about this, physical and otherwise. And in the end, the compromise was taking away that right to vote, but a very, very, uh, in comparison to other states, simple process for amending the constitution and the Minnesota Republican Party then took three different tries at amending so that the right of freed African-American men could be re restored in Minnesota. And they were successful, took a decade. Uh, there's a lot to that story, but it's a reminder that uh, all things are, you know, go down a path that's not a straight path, but it goes in and out. And we have this system of Minnesota uh, for changing our constitution. I was in office and you were on the court at a time where people attempted to use a constitution to make it much harder for people to vote, making it impossible for some people to get married. So we have to be aware that um, constitutional change is a very significant approach but that seems to be the genius of what you're proposing is it's a moment where very serious change needs to be said out loud and adopted. And Brown versus Board of Education did not overnight change the country. I was a young boy in elementary school in the South of the United States, born in Georgia, living in Georgia and Florida. Um, it didn't change overnight. We've banned well, it, drunk can I, can, I can I just say one thing? It didn't change everything overnight. Correct. Thank you. But and all it, of these things it, it, take time, it, time. It changed 
in very short order, it made it possible for the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of those things would not, I think would not have been possible, but for Brown striking down this concept of separate but equal. Yes. And so it didn't, it didn't fix education the way we all would have liked, but its impact was certain and relatively swift across the board. And in this new era right now, um, what are the ways that citizens can better inform themselves, you know, participate in this discussion? Because unlike other paths to policy change, uh, this one goes first through the legislature and then it goes on the ballot for the well, voters. Uh, I'll uh, quickly answer that. Uh, you know, Alan and I are talking about the idea. I come at it from the lens of the economy. He comes at it through the lens of justice and his career and his life. An independent campaign is formed called Our Children Minnesota, which is organizing uh, citizens or grassroots uh, active on the at the Capitol to, to advocate for this. And so they could reach out to Our Children Minnesota and participate alongside and as part of that. You know, I'll, can I add one more thing? Just I really appreciate the historical context that you and Alan just offered. Why I think this is so important. I think we are at a gut check moment in Minnesota to answer the question, are we finally serious about addressing these terrible disparities that we have in our society? And I'm reminded, so it feels like the answer is yes, but then I'm reminded, I remember when Rodney King was savagely beaten and I don't remember 93 or 1994, the whole country was up in arms over that. Now we're gonna change. It was gonna be the catalyst for change and then nothing happened. And so to me, we're at a moment where we can use this energy. You talked about it, Mark, whether it's George Floyd or COVID and say, let's come together and let's make the change. And the, the beauty of changing the constitution is it, it makes the change permanent. It seizes this moment, it changes the constitution and now we have our North star to guide us from here. So we don't lose sight. We don't get focused on other things as other things emerge as we have in our past. That's why I think now is so important. Well, it seems like that's the, the element of this slogan, I guess, about building back better. That in fact, there is this time of trying to recover education, the economy, just uh, life in a certain kind of way, but nobody wants to just go back to normal. In fact, I think the size and scope of the recognition that what we had before COVID was not okay, was not all right, was not fair, equitable, it was racist, it was built on enforced discrimination, many different things. It was uh, soulless. It didn't take care of mental health or many other things. Okay. So that recognition does make this more than maybe just a gut check. It means that there's been, there's some agreement that we can't build back the same. Maybe there's just some shrugging saying, well, now we have pandemics to worry about. How do we build? But it feels like 
your work, and this didn't just happen because of COVID, that's what is important about you telling this story in a historical context as Alan has provided and then how this particular uh, move forward. Um, I have watched a few constitutional amendments, some up close. Secretary of State had a responsibility in terms of uh, you know, uh, naming that and being part of the process of making sure voters could participate, all of that. But it feels like you've done the homework and the preparation for this is not in reaction to the COVID moment, not that the COVID moment needs, needs a lot of things reacted to it, but this has been built up over time in recognition of the failure to make progress. And Alan pointed out, uh, having an example like Florida to sit next to it and say, wait a minute, um, what's, what's the deal here? So it does feel like that is a huge plus in terms of thinking it through. When you imagine it becoming part of the Constitution, how do you imagine that next step, which you've talked about a little bit and you know about the state stepping up and that this is gonna take real resources. I mean, there you've talked about it, but it seems like imagining those next steps are also uh, something that's important because they will need to be prepared just as the process of changing the constitution has to be prepared. What are you thinking about that? And is that also part of our children? You know, is it part of the, um, the nonprofit and you know that sort of thing. I'm, I'm happy to start. And we believe this is a catalyst to start a process mm -hmm. by which the legislature and the governor would engage in a process to get input from the people of Minnesota. Ultimately, it'll be the people, the parents, the teachers, the administrators, the legislators coming together to say, this is we want what we want our education system of the future to look like. And importantly, you know. Let's just be clear, Al, neither Alan nor I are educators. We're not here to say, this is what the class size should be, or this is what the curriculum should be, or this is how they should teach. That's for the teachers and the parents to determine what their children need in order to be successful. And by the way, that might vary across the state. Different kids in different communities and different local economies may have a different focus for their educational needs. That's fine. Our point is this should be the highest priority of the state to deliver on this. And so that process that will follow, we think will be a very inclusive process where the people and the parents and the teachers of Minnesota will have direct input with their legislators and with the executive branch to craft that new education system of the future. Yes, I am noted that the preparation for being fully engaged in the democracy probably has changed in some people's thinking over the last couple of years and the last couple of months and maybe the last couple of weeks, um, being uh, able to participate in democracy also includes protecting the democracy and some things we never thought about, but also to be prepared for the economy. And the economy has certainly changed dramatically in the COVID environment. Some just claim it's was moving in certain directions and it's been accelerated. But in any case, um, the you know economy of the future that our children will inherit will look different than the ones that 
we inherited. And so, you know, your own experience, you know, as an engineer and, and in finance, I mean, you've had a lot of different experiences in life. And uh, like Alan and I, you've also run for office, which is a particular part of the economy and uh, bless your heart for that um, stepping up. But I'm wondering if um, this is a catalyst for also a bigger conversation, um, not just about what would a quality education that will prepare students for those characteristics, though, that kind of future, but uh, what is our democracy and, and, and how do we approach it? What will our economy be and, and, and what do we want our, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that you could be taking this gut check moment about a very specific thing, which is the disparities in our educational system in terms of achievement and other thing, and helping to lift it into a conversation about what kind of democracy, what kind of economy, what kind of society. Um, does that, do you ever get that feeling when you're uh, presenting or, or thinking about this? I mean, I, I'm happy to quickly start. I think the answer is absolutely yes. Alan and I have written about how many elements of justice we are ultimately talking about. Of course, racial justice, but it's also there are disparities in healthcare in our society. There are disparities in housing in our society. So many disparities, but for us, I mean, this, this one amendment is not gonna solve all of our problems in our society, right? We're not, we're not naive about that. But we do know that young people who get a quality education end up with better job opportunities, better housing, better access to healthcare. Their children end up having better opportunities. It's the most powerful tool we have to address many dimensions of disparities that we face in our society. But we recognize it by itself is not gonna solve everything. Justice Page, some young people in my neighborhood organized and changed the name of a beloved school to the Justice Allen Page School. Let me just say the, the Justice Page rhinos. <laughs> there are rhinos on the bow tie. <laughs> They're going to start dominating the state football championship if you're not careful here. But how did it feel to see empowered young people taking on something kind of personal to you. I guess you had to ignore a little bit of that because I mean, you've become partly Minnesotan and you know, this is some recognition, but they were, they studied this. They studied where the name came from. They studied what were the history. They studied what was happening. Um, and they, uh, then they, they made a decision. They not only studied, you know, it, it, it started off, the students said, what was then Ramsey Middle School. They decided that the name Ramsey, Alexander Ramsey, didn't represent who they were. And they decided, well, if the name doesn't represent us, we should change the name. They took it upon themselves to A, figure out how you go about changing the name of schools, which is not something that gets done every day. They 
not only figured out how to do it, they set about the task of doing it. That meant they had to engage the school board. They had to engage the superintendent. They had to work with the community, with their own, you know, with the school community and getting everybody on board to change the name. And then they had to decide upon a name. And what I find most interesting, and, and, and let me tell you this, having Justice Page Middle School named for me is a singular honor, an honor that, um, and I've had a lot of them, and not to diminish any of them, but this one is singular in that it was children, students, taking on what they saw as an injustice and trying to solve that and resolve that injustice. And so what did they do when they named the school? They didn't just name it Allen Page Middle School. That's not what they were about. What they were about was justice. And so they named it Justice Page Middle School. What more could you ask for? And to be a part of that and to have become a part of that community, and that's what it is. It is a community of school, of, of, of families, of children, um, of teachers, of administrators. It is, it is one of the most welcoming places I have ever been. Indeed, every, when, when, when we're not in isolation, every Friday, they welcome the school community into the school for, uh, to greet the students as they arrive, to send them off to, into the weekend with good vibrations. I, I have to tell you, I haven't seen anything and experienced anything like that. Well, I, I'm, I'm so glad you told us that whole story for all kinds of reasons, but here's one of them. I drive by that school and remember that it was my first um, uh, party caucus in my neighborhood where I started running for office. And so I have a kind of a funny, you know, like, Oh, that was a lot of work. Oh, that was great. Oh, that had hard days and good days. But when I drive by it and see your name, I think about you. But now that you've told that story so deeply, I now will be able to think about those junior high kids. What's more tenacious in our homes, let's say, than our junior hires, our middle schoolers? You know what I mean? And now that you've explained broadly and deeply the bigger picture, I then get the added benefit of thinking, oh yeah, they're the new leaders coming on. What a great bunch we have. I wonder what they think about education, 
police, health, food, siblings. Hey, isn't it great that they become empowered and able not just to figure out what to do, but to make it happen? And they, thank you for sharing that. They, they show you, show us the power of what can happen when we put our hearts and our minds and our bodies to the task and move forward and act. Amen. Last words to think about, maybe there's a couple thousand people around the planet, a couple dozen countries all over the country, things that you want to share that will help them carry this into their hearts, into their lives, into their work, because everyone who signed up for today cares about learning and learning for the future. Well, I'll just say very briefly, first of all, thank you for having us. This is a wonderful opportunity to share our message and our ideas all around the world. I mean, education is the most powerful tool we have to lift people up and to break the cycle of poverty. And so whatever people are doing in their own countries, in their own communities, in their own neighborhoods, thank you. I think we're all working on this together. Uh, you know, we've shared ideas that we're trying to bring forward in Minnesota. One, one positive surprise, after we announced our proposal a year ago, we've heard from groups in multiple other states in the United States who said, hey, we wanna do something like this in our state. What can we learn from you? And so you know, let's continue to learn from each other. Education, your knowledge is that one wonderful thing that it's not limited. You know, you can, teaching more people doesn't take away from me. We can share knowledge widely and we can all benefit by helping each other to learn and to gain the skills we need to be successful. And I, I would just close by re-emphasizing the example of what the, the children of Justice Page Middle School showed us. They showed us the power that we have to bring about change. They showed the power of what happens when we act. And we all have that ability. Some of us, you know, move the needle a little further than others. Some of us move it a little less. But when we act, we're all moving the needle. And everybody on this, in this conversation today has that power. Thank you both so much. Thank you for your life of service to our community and to the nation and the planet. But thank you for taking time today and for giving us this overview of a way to think about what do we do in this, let's call it gut check moment to make sure we create the possibility and then act on building back better. I'm really looking forward to checking out that website. Our Children Minnesota. OurChildrenMN.com. Thank you very much, President Kashkari. Thank you, Justice Page. And Justice Page, I also want to say the Diane and Allen Page Educational Foundation, incredible contribution to our community now and in the future. Thank you again. Well, th thank you, I, Diane. Um, you know, she, she created something there that we as a state can be proud of. Yeah, and its impact goes on. And that's how I think about 
the work that we're talking about here today. Exactly. We may not see all the pieces, but we're making it. And you know, we inherited a state in good shape and in discredited shape. And our job is to keep making it better. Thank you so much. And um, we're going to return now, give people a little tiny break. And this afternoon, we dive into some of the specifics of what people are doing. And you've given us a kind of, a, I would say, a deeper way to think about all of the tactical things that fit our grand strategies. But those are about um, what kind of future do we want to create? And then what does that say about who we are as a people? It's a, it's a daunting task and you've given us another path down that direction. And I so appreciate you coming today and giving us this treasure from your life, from your experience, from your wisdom. Thank you.